from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, uh, my name's Sam Lerma, Senior Research Fellow here at the Centre for European Reform, and welcome to this week's edition of the CER podcast. As uh, listeners last week will know, Beth Oppenheim has uh, has left the CR and is now working for a great charity in Israel. So we're going to try out a slightly different format. So uh, today I'm going to be discussing Brexit with uh, Charles Grant. Hi, Charles. Hello, Sam. Uh, the director of the Centre for European Reform. And we're going to be discussing uh, what's happened this week, what with the UK publishing its negotiating mandate to the EU had already published it uh, a week or so before. And there's been obviously been some fallout from it. We knew the issues were running into this. We knew that there were going to be disagreements on state aid, the role of the Court of Justice, uh, whether fish and uh, access to fishing waters uh, would be something they could agree on or not. And then there's also some other issues to do with the structure of the future uh, partnership, whether it should be made up of multiple different agreements on uh, trade, security, Justice and Home Affairs Cooperation and the like, or if it should all be packaged together. But I think one thing that stood out for me is actually that there's actually quite a lot of agreement between the UK and the EU as to what the future economic partnership should look like, at least. So, Charles, so just to get just to get going on this, probability of a deal, do you think there's going to be a deal by the end of the year? Sam, I'd say it's 50-50. could go either way. Frankly, none of us knows. We can, we can pontificate. And I even think within the government, they don't really know if they really want to deal. I think certainly some people in the government do want to deal. There's no doubt about that. But does everybody in the government want to deal? I'm I'm not sure at all. Uh, And I think the government may not even know what it wants to achieve at the end of the year. I mean, let's let's say for the sake of argument, probably more people in the government want to deal than don't want to deal. Uh, I think the EU does want a deal. Therefore, a deal, as you say, Sam, is is quite possible. But as we both know, there are lots lots of obstacles in the way. There is, and I, 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 I told the Financial Times earlier in the week that I thought there was a 65% chance of a deal uh, this year, and I'm now worried I was slightly too, <laughs> too optimistic. Well, I think since you said that, Sam, and, I, and I, I've become a little bit less optimistic myself, we, we've seen the rhetoric being up on both sides. Both sides appear to have reneged on commitments they made in the political declaration last October, and the British side in particular is really up the ante and saying, well, we don't really... We, we don't mind if there's no deal. We're happy to live with a no deal. And if, if, if it we're not heading for a deal in June, says the British government, then we'll just abandon trying to get a deal altogether and just prepare for no deal. That's kind of in, in your face uh, and quite aggressive from the point of view of the EU. And my worry is that the rhetoric used by British politicians, and in particular their questioning of the commitments they've already made with regard to Northern Ireland, which we'll come on to discuss in a minute, are losing goodwill on the EU side and therefore leaving, leaving the EU to become tougher and more aggressive in its own approach. So I think there's a danger of a kind of the both sides spiraling downwards towards more aggression and more rhetoric, and which makes it harder to get a deal. So I'm, that's why I've gone down to thinking it's only 50-50. Well, a week ago, I probably would have been where you were at 65% likelihood of a deal. So 
So, so we know what the issues are. We know that the EU wants a role for the European Court of Justice when it comes uh, to settling disputes uh, if the issue is in relation to the interpretation of EU law. We know that the EU wants access to fishing waters on the same terms as now the UK would rather negotiate that yearly. We know that when it comes to state aid, the EU wants the UK to continue to apply EU state aid rules within the UK indefinitely. And then on environment and labour, they want the, the EU wants the UK to commit to uh, maintain existing levels of standards now and into the future. Of, of these issues, what do you reckon, what, what's the biggest one? What, where, where do you think there's room for compromise and which, which, which ones do you think really matter to the EU? Well, I think on quite a lot of the level playing field provisions, so-called, uh, you could see how there might be a possible compromise. The EU has been quite careful not to demand that the UK maintain exactly the same rules as the EU has on, say, social environmental provisions. It's saying that they want something, they don't use the word, but something equivalent to the current rules, something more or less comparable to their rules. So that leaves a bit of wiggle room. The UK can have its own rules, but the EU can be satisfied that it, the, these rules will be not too far from its rules, and the EU will insist on the right to punish the UK if it deviates from being close to its rules by taking interim measures, probably putting tariffs on in particular areas. And one could conceive of an agreement there, on fish, one can conceive of an agreement. You're the expert on fish, but I think, you know, if the UK wants to have an annual negotiation like the Norwegians do to see how much fish the EU can take out of British waters, and the EU says it wants a sort of permanent permanent fixed arrangement by which it can take exactly the same number of fish as it takes today, there is a compromise, which is to have negotiations for something less than forever, lasting for less than forever, but more than one year. One can conceive a compromise on fish. And, and on, on the Court of Justice as well, you can see there could be a compromise. Uh, the EU says there must be a role for the Court of Justice. The UK says no role at all. But the UK has already signed up to saying that the Court of Justice can uh, be applied in the dispute settlement procedure for the withdrawal agreement, that any disputes that concern EU law, the, e the Court of Justice will decide what that EU law is. And of course, as we both know, in trade agreements, EU law doesn't normally apply anyway. So one could conceive of a, a kind of compromise on that. Now, the worry, if I am, I'm worried about two areas in particular, well, two, possibly three. I mean, the biggest worry is I have is on state aid. The EU's taken a very, very tough line, saying that the UK must be part of the EU state aid regime with all the EU's rules applying, applied by British authorities. That's nice of them to give us the right to police, or police the rules, but they are EU rules that must be applied. That's so-called dynamic alignment, meaning whatever the EU rules change and develop, however they change and develop, the UK must apply them. And that obviously means the Court of Justice having force over the UK, which is a no-no for the British government. So that, that is difficult to see a compromise on that. The other area is the structure of the agreement, as you alluded to, Sam. The UK wants a set of separate agreements, loose, only loosely linked together, if at all. It wants a trade agreement, then it wants an agreement on aviation, an agreement on internal security, an agreement on universities and so on, because it doesn't want the EU to be able to punish the UK in one area for, for breaches of the rules in another area, which is exactly what the EU wants to do. So the EU itself doesn't like the British proposal for structure because it's already seen this operating in the Swiss context. There are 100 plus Swiss agreements, something of that order, uh, or none of which are particularly connected, all of which have different systems of governance, and it's very complicated and messy, and the EU finds it very hard to punish the Swiss if the Swiss misbehave. So the EU's proposing a kind of temple structure with an overarching roof uh, of governance rules and provision, provisions applying to all the agreements with, with a role for the Court of Justice, and underneath it lots of pillars, a pillar for F, the FTA, the Free Trade Agreement, a pillar for aviation, a pillar for security, a pillar for energy and whatever, a pillar for freight, 
Um, and the, the EU, the, the UK doesn't want that because it doesn't want to be punished in one area for whatever the EU does in another. So then it's very hard to see how you actually compromise on that particular. But what, what do you think, Sam? Where do you think the most difficult areas are? So, so I think I agree with you. I think state aid is a problem. What the EU is asking the UK to do is sort of anathema. It's, it's, it's in the context of Brexit, you just can't see the UK signing up to it. Although I would caveat that the UK has already agreed for EU state aid rules to continue to apply indefinitely in one bit of its territory, which is Northern Ireland. And of course, there is a readover from that in that some state aid rules that apply in Northern Ireland are created at the national level. So where that is the case, you can presume that actually the UK will have to swallow EU state aid rules for the whole of the UK unless you compartmentalise Northern Ireland, which is of course possible. But I think there is an issue there and that the EU will probably have to budge if there is to be an agreement. On environment and labour, I'm I'm slightly of the opinion that we're it's being blown out of proportion. Because if you actually describe what the EU is proposing, you have a you have a scenario but in which the UK can either accept tariffs now and by that I mean, say, well, we're not say we're not going to have an agreement because you're asking for these provisions on environmental labour, or it can accept them in the knowledge that at some point in the future, if the UK and the EU were to significantly diverge when it comes to outcomes in these areas, which is quite unlikely, then tariffs could come into effect there. Then, so it's a, it's essentially a question of do you want tariffs definitely now or maybe later. And of course, this will re- if the UK is to accept this, it will require them moving away from their stated pr- position. In in particular, they have said the UK said that it doesn't want uh, environment and labour obligations to be subject to dispute settlement. The UK has said this because this is how the EU normally approaches its trade agreements. But America wants that anyway. But exactly. So uh, the US, the UK is going to have to concede that point with the US anyway, because in US trade agreements, the labour and environmental provisions are subject to dispute settlement, and the US can withdraw concessions in the event of you breaching them. So we're going to move. The UK is going to move on that anyway. So in, in a bit, in a sense, I feel this is a bit of a phony war. But when it comes to state aid I think the disagreement is real and the EU will have to budge a little bit and on fish I agree surely there's got to be a compromise between what we have today forever and negotiate every one year surely there's a middle ground now Sam you've done a lot of work on the Irish border questions over the last few years and I know that on the EU side there is a real concern that the British might be going back on what they think the British signed up to in the withdrawal agreement last October. And this could be a, 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 create a lot of ill will, if not worse, on the, uh, between the EU and the UK. Could you explain what, what is it that the EU thinks the British signed up to in, in October? Why is the EU worried about this now? And, and, and what, what is the British, the British justification for the line they're taking? Well, so if you read the withdrawal agreement in the Northern Ireland Protocol, and it's been written in a way that it does make it slightly confusing, but... The default for any good entering Northern Ireland, be it from the rest of the world or from Great Britain, is that it shall be treated as if it's entering the EU's customs territory. The Northern Ireland Protocol then says the UK and EU will negotiate exceptions to that, and there will be exceptions to that rule, but the default is goods entering Northern Ireland treated as if they're entering the EU. And this obviously requires checks on goods entering Northern Ireland to ensure that it's compliant with the EU's regime. And the UK signed up to this, but seemingly is now saying that they don't agree with that interpretation, even though that is what it says. And this is, of course, making the EU quite concerned, because we have a situation now whereby the UK is potentially not going to sign up 
uh, is not going to fulfil its international obligations under a treaty it has only just signed. My feeling here is that a lot of this is just talk on the UK side for the domestic audience. And I do actually feel if the UK were to just accept the premise and accept what it is they have signed, the EU would then be much more willing to discuss ways those checks could be de-dramatised. This is the Barnier phrase, de-dramatisation. And you can talk about... Uh, people phrase it in different ways, so max fact alternative arrangements. But the fact is, because the UK is the enforcement authority, both in Great Britain and Northern Ireland, there is much greater scope to perform any inspections or meet any requirements in a way that doesn't necessarily require it to be done literally at the border than you would have on a normal border where, for example, you have the British authorities on one side and the French authorities on the other. But to get to that point where we can talk about de-dramatisation, the British first have to accept what it is they've agreed to. And at the moment, the public proclamations of senior British politicians are giving the EU cause for concern. Yes, I think part of the problem is that you, the Prime Minister himself, Boris Johnson, and Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Minister, both said there won't be any controls at all. And that's not actually what they signed up to as far as the EU is concerned. So the trouble is that the British rhetoric, again, is is getting the EU very worried and making it harder to come up with the sort of practical solutions that you referred to. Yes, exactly. Um, but hope, hopefully <laughs> they will find a way through. But of course, this is something that could be another big flashpoint over the course of the year. And if the protocol and the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol isn't resolved, then it's difficult to see a trade agreement being done. But we've we've talked quite a lot about trade. And I, and I know, Charles, that something that sometimes annoys you slightly is that not enough attention is paid towards another big area of UK-EU cooperation, and that's security. So what have you made of the two mandates when it comes to security and working together? Well, I think in the long run, the security cooperation that happens or doesn't happen post-Brexit probably matters as much for, for Europe as a whole as the trading precise trading arrangements. Both the French and the Germans are very keen to keep the British plugged in in some way to, to European security cooperation post-Brexit, because I understand that Europe would be much weaker vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world without Britain's contribution on foreign policy, defence, counter-terrorism, police cooperation, and so on. Having said that, um, when I'm in a rather strange position, because on, on foreign and defence policy, the British, uh, the British negotiating mandate uh, the government document says we don't want any special arrangements on foreign defence policy. It's not even, they're not even mentioned. Uh, and the, the line being, well, we don't have any special structure to link us to the US, so why should we have a special structure to plug us into the EU? Uh, to which the, an the answer on the EU side is yes, but you know we, we actually do actually agree on most of the key issues. On mo our values are very similar. On if you look at climate change or relations in Russia or the Middle East peace process or, or the Iran pro nuclear problem, the British are actually lined up usually more or less where the EU is lined up and having some sort of structure where we can share information develop common analyses and understand each other better is not a bad idea. So, in fact, France and Germany are preparing, as we speak, to launch something called the European Security Council, which would be, if the British want to take part in it, some sort of loose, informal structure for all talking about these common challenges. So that's that's there's a difference of perception at the moment between the, the British thinks nothing much is needed, the, the EU thinks something is needed on that side. But more what now that can be avoided for now. In a way, in a way, it's probably quite sensible not to try and fix in stone uh, the, these relationships for, on security today because we're going to be having bun fights over the trading arrangements which won't be conducive to a happy and constructive security partnership. But what has to be done quite soon is the so-called justice and home affairs provisions on police cooperation, the arrest warrants, 
uh, uh, criminal databases and so on, which, which, which actually are necessary because if we don't have any cooperation in these areas, the people who are going to profit are the crooks and the gangsters and the spies and the mafiosi types. So we do need to have something in place. And again, the British understand this. They have proposed uh, structure, putting structures in place in these kinds of JHA, Justice and Affairs Corporation. But the trouble is they've set, a con they've set conditions which would be hard for the EU to satisfy. The British have said, well, we want, these, this, we want close relationships in security cooperation on so-called internal security, but we mustn't allow any role for the Court of Justice the European Court of Justice, because that's uh, that's a no-no for us, and we we don't really we're reluctant to accept EU rules on data as well, which is another condition that EU is setting. So I think everybody sees the need for close cooperation, uh, but unless the British are prepared to accept some of the EU's conditions, it won't be very close, which is 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 dangerous to the security of both the British and the other European nations. So that is a real difficulty, and I think it'll require a lot of goodwill to solve that problem. But ultimately, optimistic. So optimistic on security and defence, justice and home affairs a bit more unsure. Is that a fair summary? I think in the, as long as, in the long run, just in foreign and security policy, whatever structures we have, there's so many mutual common interests, whether we have structured links or less structured links, more informal links, I think hopefully we will help each other because we need each other. I'm, I'm worried about the justice and affairs, that both sides have their principles. The EU says must be a role for the Court of Justice, which is particularly difficult for databases. It's less difficult for uh, Euro cooperation on Europol. Um, and the arrest warrant's kind of in between. So I think, I think I'm think i more worried that the, the, the sort of dogmatic principles on, from both the British and the EU may make justice cooperation and police cooperation very hard after Brexit. And let's hope pragmatism can win through. Well, that's a good sentiment, I think, to finish on. So good to speak to you today, Charles. I'm sure we'll be having this discussion many times over the, the coming year. But sure uh, awesome. thanks very much. Yeah, okay. speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.